Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 246 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I talk to Andrew Stewart of Triple Vision Games about their Metroidvania adventure game, Mabel and the Wood. It's very good. I streamed it, actually, a couple of weeks ago. But before we delve into that, let's chat about what else is under Kanerince's vast umbrella. First, we have Kanerince itself, of course, on Mondays. This week, it's covering Assassin's Creed 4, Black Flag. I haven't played that one. I've owned it for years, probably five, six years. I haven't played it. Classic Assassin's Creed for me. I think I own all of them. Only played four of them. Kind of embarrassing. Anyway, next on Wednesdays we have Sound of Play where we celebrate the scores, the musical scores, of course, of video games. Excellent stuff. Really, really relaxing. And in fact, I've actually referred some guests over to that wonderful show. So be on a watch out for that. And on Thursdays we have Playwright, where two people called Ryan invent games based on the ideas sent to them by their listeners. It's excellent, really, really entertaining. Do have a listen. Now if you want to hear more about those podcasts, delve into the archives of all those shows, you can. You can go to com, where you will find not only archives of those four podcasts, including this one, which is, of course, The Sausage Factory, but you knew that because you've listened to me say that at the beginning of the show. And uh, you can also go to a forum. There's a lively forum over there. I know, it's weird, right? In 2019, forum's still happening. But yes, it does. Check it out. Now, there's also a Twitch stream. Um, and uh, we have additional content coming our way, um, MK Crowders is actually, uh, Michael Crowders is actually doing something on Friday evenings now, uh, in fact the first episode will be up in the evening as of this show is being released, so exciting times, and also on Sundays is me, Sunday evenings typically at 8pm, British summertime or Greenwich Mean Time, depending on the time of year, and uh, yeah, just the streaming video games of various descriptions, just random, just, you know, complete variety show. Sometimes I stream games I've had guests on the show for, uh, sometimes I just stream random games I kind of have an inkling to play. Uh, for example, at the time of recording this uh, particular segment, I'm actually going to be uh, streaming School Days on my ZX Spectrum, because, you know, why not? Now you can find the Twitch team if you just go to twitch.tv forward slash Kane and Rinse. And there we are. Follow the channel, please, and uh, join us as we play silly games really, really badly. Now if you want to chuck us some coin, you can. Indeed, you can. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Kane and Rinse, all one word of course, then you can actually see our page and you'll see there's one solitary tier. That's right, just one, rather than multiple tiers. Oh no, if we don't do that. One tier, and that one tier requires you to just pay one US dollar a month, just one, and you'll get the privilege, access if you will, to extra content. Hurrah, this extra content includes Caden Rinse one week early. Shocking, I know. You get it one week early, and not only that, there's also an extended edition. Yes, there's also the weekly, weekly, monthly podcast hosted by Leon and Jay, and that's a special um, um, 
podcast is always behind the Patreon, so the only way to listen to it is to actually have uh, a, a Patreon subscription. And then finally, there's the platform specials, which we do many of. There's one on Xbox, there's one on PlayStation, there's one on Mega Drive, Game Boy, and Amiga. And there's going to be one very soon on the Dreamcast. So if you want to get listen to that, you want to subscribe to Patreon. But anyway, enough of that. Let's listen to me from the past talk to someone called Andrew Stewart about a game starring a little girl carrying a very, very heavy sword. Take it away, me. Andrew. Who are you? Hello. Hello. Who are you? And what do you do? Uh, I'm Andrew Stewart. Um, uh, I make games by myself, you sometimes do. with creators, um, but generally, yeah, myself and just small teams. Okay, cool. And uh, how did you make a start doing that very thing? You can go uh, back as far as you like. Well, I mean, the, the <laughs> first time I ever did any kind of game making was... Um, when I was very young, like about three or four years old, wow. Um, we, we got a, a hand-me-down from one of my cousins, like a um, a Dragon Thirty Two, just an old um, sort of tape deck based, like cassette based uh, computer, and um, we didn't actually have any games for it, and we couldn't really get them anywhere. So my dad got us a book called games for your dragon where you just copied the codes in and you got sort of rip-off versions of of space invaders um there's no like real creativity in that the, the first sort of time that i ever tried to make my own game was uh, when we got a sinclair zx spectrum a couple of years later um and they were really bad games but they were still like uh i was it, i was coming up with the ideas and actually making the game um but then i sort of didn't really do any any kind of programming or game development at all apart from just sort of writing down ideas and you know drawing levels in my school book and things like that um but it was when sort of flash came around and i started playing flash games when i was in college um and despite doing music at college um, they taught you to use Flash as part of the music course because obviously there's not enough music to learn, so <laughs> teach you uh, other things as well. And uh, I used that to make lots of sort of silly, puerile, teenager-style games. Um, and yeah, from there it's just it's always been a hobby until maybe about sort of um, I think it was about eight years ago I got a game. Um, commissioned, uh, sponsored, back when flash, spon- flash sponsorship was a thing. Um, I'm just going to check the dates on that, actually. It was by, do you remember Ask Jeeves? Yes. So, uh, Ask Jeeves were... Um, it was one so- of the many search engines. Yeah, that existed well, they, back in the day. Now there's only two. It went to become uh, ask.com. Right. Um, or doc, probably .co.uk. Yeah. And um, they uh, were starting to commission like small sort of flash games um, to try and get people to use their gaming platform, which was just basically just a flash portal. Um, so I made one called Seahorse Force. Uh, can I find it now? See the date. <laughs> I think that was about sort of eight years ago. Okay, twenty eleven. Uh, right. So b- before that, I'd only really done. Um, I'd done a few game jams like Ludum Dare or Ludum okay. Dare. And I said, but this was sort of the first one where I got any kind of money for it. it. wasn't a lot, but it was like it made me think. Oh, if I keep on doing this, maybe I can uh, actually potentially do this for a living. Okay. And I've always been people that sort of flits from job to job, never really having a, um, I've never really had a job where it's been something that I really wanted to do. You know, it's okay. never been a job like work towards. Um, right. But um, yeah, I've always just just made games in my spare time, and then about 
I was still doing lots of game jams, and about four and a half years ago, I did the Ludum Dare again, and the theme was an unconventional, uh, unconventional weapon. Um, but I couldn't think of a, an unconventional weapon, so I just came up with the idea of... Um, in fact, someone on Twitter suggested using um, a conventional weapon in an unconventional way. So from that... Then by proxy uh, in it being unconventional. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When it's a game jam, you've got you know you've got. Well, yeah. I mean, I must confess. Could you just get there? Could you just expand a little bit more on Luton Dare and how the structure works? Because I've been, I mean, I've been outside the periphery. I'm not a developer. I can code, yeah. uh, but you know, in, only in C plus plus and stuff. It's pretty pretty basic stuff. So, um, and I've only used it for tools and stuff. But the point is, um, how does the structure work with it? Because fascinating. Because I've, like I said, I've seen game jams before and. In, in various, sometimes quite in you know in a direct way, but how does yeah. how do they work? No correction, Ludendare. How does that work? Yeah, Ludendare. I can explain quite easily because I've done mm. it quite a few times. Um, so there are basically two formats for it. Um, but when you enter the jam, you can either enter the competition or the jam. Um, the only the differences are the rules basically. So if you enter the competition version, you've got 48, 48 hours from when the theme is announced to make your game. Um, and you have to do it entirely by yourself. Um, if you enter the jam version, you can um, uh, take three days, so 72 hours. Uh, you can use Teams. And also, it's a bit more loose as to how closely you have to follow the actual theme. Um, the theme itself is uh, voted on by the community uh, for sort of the week before the jam starts. And then the winning theme is announced usually around 2 a.m. UK time. Um, and then you've got sort of 48 hours from there to make a game around that theme. Once the you've made the game, you upload it to the Ludendare site and people play it and vote on it. But you can only sort of vote on it if you've submitted a game yourself. Um, you can still comment. Um, oh, so only other creators can vote on it? Yes. That's genius. You have, to, you have to have voted on a certain number of other people's games for your game to be able to rate, like to actually finally place. So the creators are critiquing other creators' work. That's excellent. Okay. Yes. And it's <laughs> fantastic feedback. Um, yeah. I've done a few of the jams where they don't really have the same sort of community. Um, but like when I did when I did Mabel, there was I think two and a half thousand entries in that one. So quite a lot of people to play your game, quite a lot of comments. Um, and you get you get quite granular feedback uh, in that you have an overall score, and then people rate it um, based on graphics, audio gameplay, uh, fun. Which, you know, it can be a bit nebulous, but works quite well. Humour mm-hmm. uh, and theme. Um, so you get, you might get an overall score of, say, like 4.2 or whatever, um, but you might have like a really high score in the graphics and the, maybe it was the audio pulling you down, things like that. So it can help you when you're developing to sort of work out, uh, particularly if you like working by yourself, or you want to become proficient or like sort of uh, proficient in, in more than one area, it can help you work out um, perhaps why you need to uh, improve your skills or even just sometimes improve your workflow if, if it's if that's what's caused you not to maybe score as high in that in that area. Um, and that's it. There are there are other game jams. It's um, a seven-day uh, roguelike where you've got seven days to make a, a roguelike. Um there was a seven-day FPS where it's seven days to make an FPS, um, which is where I think Super Hot came from. That um, there are, it seems like now there are about a hundred jams a week, like different themes and different types. And That's different a rules. lot of games being made, and then yeah. going into the bin. That's a bit sad, but yeah, you like to say it's, be... a, it's difficult for me sometimes to throw the game, like throw the ideas away. But in reality, it's um, I don't know. It's quite. It, uh, sounds, it sounds like a 
It's like a marathon, like an exercise, like a yeah. Know, the, the 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 act of creation is just the byproduct of the act of creation itself. Yeah, and uh, that sounds like it's the exercise in your ability to make games over and over and over again because the myth that you just like I've got this amazing idea. Did you say a amazing idea? Yes, I'm going to make it a gay out of it. Right. Good luck with that. I mean, yes. do you really think the person who made threes? Take a drink, everyone. Yes, I mentioned threes. Um, just come up with that idea and go. That's it, Eureka! No, 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 no! I didn't. Exactly. Yeah. The, the <laughs> actual. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the uh, the common saying that your ideas are worthless. So I think ideas are actually. No, no, I didn't say that. Super valuable, yeah. but execution is also super, super important. Um, you can't, yeah, you can't really have one without the other. I don't think. No, it feeds into the other. One feeds into the yeah. other. There it is. Right. <laughs> Next question, then. Well done. Very well answered. And thank you oh, for thank expanding you. on the on the uh, game jam phenomena yeah. thing. Because yeah. you know, uh, I still remember uh, Molydew and that thing. That was quite. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, I used to do the Molydew jam. <laughs> that was uh, the the weird thing. Actually, going from. Because uh, Mabel was obviously a, a jam game originally. Yeah, um, of course, yes. But it went from I went from someone who made games in forty-eight hours to four and a half years. Four and a half <laughs> years, which yeah, is a very different experience. Yeah, it's uh, yeah a lot of learning in that time, definitely. Yes, absolutely, and the constant realization that wait, I know how this works, but what if um, any Joe picks this up and picks up? <laughs> It's just like when I say this often when uh, when I'm going to the expos and playing demos, the most intimidating demo I find playing is puzzle games. Yeah. <laughs> because, because I've got the developer leaning over me, bless them, whoever they may be, and they're just, you know, watching. They're not judging to see if I'm an idiot, even though I think I'm there. <laughs> just because I can't get through this puzzle. Just to make sure that I understand the game and play the game and get something out of it and not get frustrated and stuff yep. uh, but unfortunately human beings the way we are going you you judging my inability to solve this puzzle no <laughs> and uh, there was one particular one at, at uh, PAX West that uh, it was one of those incidences where I knew what to do but because my hand had like uh, hand to eye coordination isn't what it was uh, I couldn't do it very well it was the the, the the jump mechanic was well the particular mechanic was you had to be very very quick to actually execute it I knew what what I needed to do but the dexterity required was a little bit almost beyond my abilities yeah but I managed I managed to do it in the end and when I finished the demo I picked you know and, and the developer wandered over and goes I'm really sorry about that jump <laughs> <laughs> I need I need to fix that jump I know I'm so sorry I'm really sorry it was just so apologetic because he knew he knew that he needed to balance it. But he didn't have time to because it was it was demoed, it was on the show floor. He didn't have time to fix it, so he yeah. he was he was very apologetic. But uh, <laughs> but you know this this one of those things. Anyway, as a creator of things, Andrew, yeah, what do you believe is your biggest influence? Uh, I don't know. I don't really think about um, influences. Um, like as in having a single influence on everything that I do? Not necessarily that. It's it's a rather nebulous question, but deliberately so, because I think it's important as a creator to really mm. ponder this. Is it a mm. single thing? Is it an emotion? Is it someone else? Is it an idea, a collection of ideas? Is it a concept? Is it, I don't know, is it the universe itself? I suspect... You're probably inspired by some part of the universe that we exist in. But uh, is there anything or things you can point to and go, I tend to orbit around that, and that's and the result. as a result, these things appear out of my head? I think um, I'm quite um, greedy. I'm a greedy consumer when it comes to sort of art and entertainment and... Um, so Spotify, when that came into existence, 
um, and also things like uh, you know Bandcamp and uh, MySpace. We used to have to have music on MySpace. Um, they were an amazing things for me because it meant I didn't have to spend as much money buying like hundreds of albums, uh, just because I always wanted like to hear something new. Um, I like, tend to absorb things obsessively, but for a very short amount of time. Um, and I think a lot of that came from um, the way I always sort of had things uh, growing up when I was very young. Like I was always the youngest in the family from uh, not a huge family, but quite large with all my cousins and everything. So we just used to get like everything, like everything handed down to me. So like uh, when I was a kid, I was listening to something like Faith No More one day and then Natalie and Brulia the next. And then That's an eclectic mix. A bit of Slayer, you know, a bit of uh, Okay. A bit of TLC. Do you know just, just Yeah. Just I, I must have. admit, I mean, out of all of that, Faith No More would be number one. <laughs> if I may. Uh fair, yeah. Would, yeah. Definitely I mean, Midlife friend. Crisis, that's a song, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, well I can still listen. I can still listen to Angel Dust, whereas yeah, we can, no, can't we? Right? Really, yeah, I'm not not as much. I can't really still uh, enjoy that as much. TLC actually, I still listen to that every now and then. Yeah, it's um interesting. Just a side note: last vinyl album I bought was indeed Angel Dust. Oh, right, cool. Yeah, I haven't bought any album vinyl recently. Although people were meant to these days, but no, oh, yeah, last, all those years ago, it's over 25 years ago now. Best not think about it. Move on. I <laughs> know <laughs> I got. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in fact, I know it was uh, a band called the Dismemberment Plan. Who no one will know, but they're good. Okay. Oh, they're good. Um, yeah. So uh, as, when I was actually playing games as a kid, as well, like when I probably played when I was like at an age where I was really sort of appreciating games and trying to um, getting more out of them than just like the the joy of being able to move around and stuff. Um. I had um, uh, Spectrum, which I still like. We still kept that until I was like, a teenager from being a kid. Um, and a SNES. Um, so every time I look at like all my game ideas, and almost everything that I want to make or um, the idea, like the little games that I build and stuff, they always seem to have that sort of weird mix of the, I don't know, like Spectrum games have like a certain feel to them where they're kind of like, sometimes it seems like madness that like the developers just decided, oh, I'll just chuck that in there because I can. And they do. And it didn't always work. But um, it was like that, sort of crossed with the sort of feel and aesthetic of the, the SNES games. I always feel like things sort of fall into there. Um, That's brilliant. And it wasn't like later going into college that we got any sort of other gaming machines and that was just like pc mm-hmm. so i started playing some more strategy games and things like that but um yeah as a kid i just while my friends got their xboxes and uh, like psx's i still had my trusty snares and spectrum wow um and of course PC. Yeah. well my, my snares like uh, my snares broke and i was yeah. so upset my dad we went to get a new one. He's like, you sure you don't want one of these PlayStations? I was like, no, I want my, I want my SNES back. So he got me a, a new SNES, which came with the Mario All-Stars, so I got all the Marios again, so that was good. There you go. Can't lose. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think because I have been exposed to like so many different things and I've been surprised by what I've enjoyed, I'm always like open to just trying anything um and because i work in game maker uh, when i'm making games i i know that like almost any idea i have i can have like a working like like really really sort of rudimentary but like a really um a better playable thing of a mechanic within a couple of hours at most yeah so no matter how stupid the idea sounds or crazy the idea sounds um, I can just build it and see within a couple of hours. Does it feel good? Does it? Am I getting what I expected to get out of it? Right. Um, and a lot of the time, the answer is no. But every now and then, it's something cool. 
Every exactly, exactly. And uh, despite you know we we're, were chatting before recording the show, and I think we talked about I was at PAX West and I played over forty games. Yeah. And uh, that's as, by the way, that's a tiny fraction of what actually was there. Yeah. Out. I didn't go to the Nintendo booth because I'm not insane. <laughs> I just don't want a bit crushed and die. And uh, Sony's booth, I did go to, played a couple of games there. Some very interesting, one well, very interesting one, but that's not the point. What I'm talking about is the sheer volume of games there. And, you know, we talk about PC games, and you immediately said, oh, yeah, I was just, I was just playing strategy games and maybe the odd FPS. I remember mm-hmm. that's all the PC had. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Look at it now. <laughs> Literally everything. Anything. And you could be jumping from a driving game to a game that's not potentially a game. I'm looking, looking yeah. at you, the, the Arista. Is that really a game? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's mm-hmm. just, honestly, my Steam list, I don't call it a pile of shame because, you know, that's there because I'm media, so I play a lot of games on there. There's a lot of yeah. them, Andrew. It's a lot. Uh, but I'm here to, you know, to, to review them and that kind of thing. But I just love the fact that it's just so eclectic. So yeah. eclectic, and I got you know The Witcher nestling up against some really weird uh, indie game that only lasts twenty minutes. Doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's on the same list, Andrew. <laughs> it's like it's The right. Witcher. Yeah, we got, got four hundred games. I feel like I need more now. Yeah, yeah. It does. It's <laughs> mine's six hundred, but I'm not bragging. It's that's not something it's, that you're catching me. Yeah, but it's not about that. It's just a point of fact. Like yeah, it's yeah. just just. A yeah, lot of stuff. Right. Next question. Because mm-hmm. I think you've covered basically your influences and you're basically saying that, you know, when it comes real balls down to it, it's a mixture of, of the past and the fact that I think what I got really the crux was the, the idea that people would just jam stuff into a game without any thought and go, oh, but right, let's just put a giant banana in there. And, and then <laughs> here we are. Games was about uh, lawn mowing, like mowing the lawn. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Trash man. Trash man. Yeah. A game about emptying bins, my friend. And that was released and very successful it was too. But, you know, it's just. And I was about to say banana. But although so, the bananas come back with my friend Pedro. But, you know, it's. True. <laughs> everything's circular, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, great response. Basically, jamming stuff in, hope see if it sticks. And sometimes it don't, but sometimes when it does stick, it really sticks hard. That's great. Yeah. So, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? It's a difficult one, really. Um, so I've got friends who are developers who I admire because... Of like sort of the um, the work that they're doing currently, like, like um, a couple of examples are the guys who are working on Flotsam. Um, they're uh, I really love how organised they are, and uh, also how awesome the game is. Um, and also the guys who are working on um, Lonely Mountains Downhill. What a magnificent um, game that is! It is absolutely fantastic. It's um, just when you when you pick it up and go, oh, this is easy because it looks easy, <laughs> and you watch someone play it going, oh, this is just this way too strong. Oh no! <laughs> the, yeah. the weird thing is, so I um, I was lucky enough to get uh, to play the uh, beta for that, uh, and uh, my little girl Joni, who yeah. is four, um, she, I mean, I'm not going to say she didn't fall off a lot. But um, on sort of the flat bits, she just enjoyed sort of like tootling around. Yeah. Um, I was kind of begging them just to do like a uh, have like a kid mode in it, where they um, where you can't sort of fall off and you just sort of have a, a nicer tr- like a safer track for them to uh, put to around play on. in. Yeah, that'd be good. I wish more games had kid modes. Yeah. Like, did you ever play uh, Tumble Seed? Oh yes. So. Uh, again, Joni loved playing that, but obviously she'd just fall down holes all the time, which she thought was funny, but it meant that I'd have to take the controller off to go back, you know, to get her back into the game from the menu when she used all the lives up and things like that. I just kind of wish that had um, a kid-friendly mode again where 
you could just just play with the mechanics. It's just kind of for her, it was just fun to sort of just manipulate the the bar and have the seed rolling about. One of the earliest games I bought on the Switch, that indie game. Really? Is. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I think it was like my second or third game I got on there. Yeah, because remember the Switch is. You've got to get that. Yeah, the Switch is about three years old now. Believe it or not, yeah. don't think about it. Uh, and, uh, that was yeah, that was the when that was one of the earliest ones that arrived. So yeah. when we when we're talking about like um, developers that I look up to, it's a really difficult question because I sort of got the reason I wanted to, or what inspired me to try and make games that people would actually like rather than just or that other people might want to play, um, rather than just making stuff just for me really um was um world of goo it's like 2d boy and uh although they only really made that game i know they did like little inferno and uh, the human human resource machine um but yeah just there was something about world of goo where i just thought i'd love to try and make something like this and it seems sort of within reach as well um, from where I was, so it's difficult. But it's difficult to say that I look up to them because they're not really like two D by aren't. They've gone sort of the separate ways, I think, and they're doing like different things. Um, and then yeah, back in the day, I loved like um, the stuff that Edmund McMillan was doing uh, with his like the cry for help, and uh, obviously Super Meat Boy. Super Meat Boy was a, a like a really big game for me. I loved that. Still play it now every now and then. Whenever uh, whenever anyone's trying to get into making games, who's a friend, I always just say, just play Super Meat Boy, and try and work out how to put the levels together. Um, but yeah. <laughs> whenever I think of Super Meat Boy, I just think of Trails of Blood. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, oh yeah, oh, oh I've almost done it. Come on. But yeah, yeah that was, go on. I was to say so what I what I really like about it is that it's got the um super difficult but not not actually really punishing because you only ever lose a few seconds progress and uh, you're straight back into the action. That's the and point, just yeah. the, the, you get like a real when you play games like that, you're playing the same level over and over and over again. You get like a natural like high when you finish the level. Like you get that yes moment. Um and I feel like Super Meat Boy does a really good job of letting you revel in that because it shows you like all the errors that you've made, and um, because it's not like so. I uh, on Switch I got uh, the end is nigh, um, and I felt that suffered by not having that because uh, so Super Meat Boy it's all separate levels, um, so you get that. Um, sort of reinforcement of that uh, sort of success feeling at the end of every single level whereas in the end is nigh it's kind of the same game except that the levels every single level is linked like a metroidvania style thing so um, when you get to the end of a difficult room you don't really get that amazing feeling because nothing saved yet <laughs> nothing's finished yeah it's like you're just on the next screen yeah yeah um Where's the next save going to come from? Yeah, cause... Well, I think it does actually save every screen. It's just that you're okay. not being. It's not. It's not. The game's not acknowledging that you've um, achieved anything. Right. Just got to the next screen. Um, but anyway, that's not really answering the question. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, you, you've acknowledged a lot of developers who made those games, and and uh, it's. Uh, no, it's a good answer because, again, it does sort of inspire you to actually persevere and carry on and do the things you're doing yeah. with making of Mabel in the Woods. So, last question of the first half yeah. is this. What are you playing right now? Um, I am playing... Let me just go to my Steam library. <laughs> I'm playing a few things. <laughs> um... I'm playing uh, Dicey Dungeons. Okay, I heard things about this. Okay. And that is just because I was a little bit too obsessed with Slay the Spire. 
Ah, um, right. I tried to use it to sort of wean myself off it, but now I've become a little bit too obsessed with uh, Dicey Dungeons. Um, and then on the um, Switch, uh, I'm playing Yoshi's Island again because uh, my SNES doesn't work anymore. Again? Now, <laughs> now, well, now the SNES games are back on... Uh, uh, on the Switch. They are, yeah. Now they're on the Switch. Um, I've just, uh, yeah, I, I played through Pilot Wings. Um, and to be honest, Pilot Wings, it's a fun game that's really difficult at times because of the Mode 7. The the 3D in it isn't as easy for your brain to really sort of work out exactly where you are. So some of the tasks are harder because of how the 3D is implemented. But because it's got the rewind system on the SNES, you don't just immediately fail and have to do the whole like thing again. Oh, so you okay. can your... Wow. That's been good. Um, yeah, I can see. I can yeah. imagine that being quite advantageous. Yeah. Yeah, it is good. And this, so I've been playing that. I'm really enjoying that. Um, but my main two at the minute are definitely Dicey Dungeons and uh, Yoshi's Island. Cool. Um, yeah, I played Pilot Wing 64 recently. That was fun. See, I never, I never had an N64. Right. We played that. I played games around my friend's house, like Goldeneye. Played quite a bit of that, but yeah. Um, no, I, I streamed it. It uh, starts off well, but then, then hits a massive difficulty cliff. <laughs> Not yeah. curve, cliff. Yeah, that's pretty much how Pilot Wings on the SNES. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like okay, you know how to control these vehicles. Yeah, here's some horrible punishing tasks that you're never going to complete ever in the history of ever. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> They've got to make it so that you can't you can't rent it and finish it with like two days having like rented it for two days. Right. That's how they designed it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Great. But anyway, it's fine. But it was the it was the PAL version, so you know borders ah. and and washed out colours and thanks thanks Nintendo. Nothing but love for for the PAL territories. Hey, you loved us. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Anything else? Um, well, I started trying to play Dishonored Two, having loved right. Dishonored One. Yes, uh, um, but I couldn't get into it, and I oh. think it's because I was trying to play it in the same way that I played through the first one, which Not was a good uh, idea. Not a good idea. Like super, yeah, super stealthy and like uh, passive, and right. So I think I might just start it again and just go all out genocidal maniac. See if I can find that part of myself. Yeah, see if you can delve deep into that dark recess. Find Yeah. Right then. That's the end of part one. Well done. Thanks. We're now going to move on to the second half where we delve deep into Maple and the Wood. deep into Mabel and the Wood, we need to know what it is. So what is Mabel and the Wood? 
Um, well, we were talking about this before the uh, podcast. Indeed, we were. <laughs> now we're recording, so please <laughs> have another go. So you got a second chance now. Well, it's not that easy to define in that I can define it in ways that will be misleading. So I can say it's a Metroidvania um, and it's a platformer. And you could also say it's a bit like Mega Man. And all of those things are sort of true. Uh, it's a Metroidvania that's an open world. Uh, it's sort of a platformer in that you move sideways and up and down. Uh, but unlike a platformer, you don't really have jumping in it. Uh, you play a girl who has um, a sword that she can't lift, so she can't jump. But she's a shapeshifter. So um, at the start of the game, she turns into a fairy where you drop the sword uh fly wherever you want until your magic runs out and then you can recall the sword back to you um any enemies that passes through get sliced into pieces um every time you kill any of the bosses then you can uh, take on their form uh, and use that to reach different areas which is where sort of the metroidvania element comes into it um so for example the first boss that you'll fight will be uh, a giant spider if you kill the spider then you you can suddenly change into a spider, fire the sword out, a bit like a bionic commando kind of grappling hook crossed with an attack. Uh, and then, yeah, swing through the levels. Uh, there's a mole, an eagle, um, a corrupted parishioner who uh, shifts between dimensions. You know, all, all the tropes. Yeah, uh, it's all there. It's all there. Um, but it's also one where... Um, you can actually, um, you can play through the game uh, passively. Um, so even though it's a game about killing these bosses and taking their shape, I wanted to use the the way that, so when you play a Metroidvania game, there are always lots of secrets and they generally have power-ups and uh, uh, sometimes sort of different um, weapons and things at the end of those sort of secrets. Um, but in Mabel, it's, it's, the secrets sort of reveal a different way of playing the game. Um so you can find different routes through the world that will sort of take you around those bosses, meaning that you can reach the end of the game having not actually fought any of them. Um, which I thought would be an interesting twist on a game where the way that you move is actually quite deadly. Like the um, So with the fairy, the dropping sword and recalling it mechanic is the only way that you can get over some obstacles. So if you want to jump up, you have to drop the sword to be able to fly upwards to get up there. So um, if an enemy happens to, or creature, I should say, happens to like pass between you and the sword at the moment that you recall it, then unfortunately you kill them, even if you didn't want to. Um, so the pacifist uh, path is kind of sort of a self-imposed hard mode. That's really impressive. It's not something I delved into too much, but I did get hints of it as I played through the game. Like, maybe, oh, wait, yeah. I could have, could have gone down there. Why don't I do that? Oh, well, let's just carry on anyway, carry on killing stuff, that's fine. Um, but yeah, that's that's a lovely sort of addition to the game. And uh, as you said, uh, Mabel, she does turn into other things. Yeah. And um, I just want to talk about the switch between Mabel when she's walking slowly, mm-hmm. dragging this massive sword behind her, because she is, I'm guessing, between the age of six and eight. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, she's, she's not a specific age. She's, yeah, no. around, around that age. Around that age. And uh, her arrival is a thing. We won't go into it. It's quite funny. Um, but when she is transformed into whatever it may be, it's... For, the transformation is very dramatic um, in that it's it basically your control, your interaction with the world changes, you know, instantly. Yeah. Um, was this intentional? Was this feeling uh, intentional? Was it was was Maybellwood built around this feeling? Yeah, I mean, when it first started, it was in the the game jams. It was just the fairy form initially. Um, so a lot of the way that she moves and sort of the way that she um, is almost catapulted, if you like, when you, you change into that form um, and the different forms. 
it was to sort of enable you to um, more easily sort of avoid the attacks of the enemies and then give you like the time to then line up your shot to take them down. Because um, it almost works, uh, particularly the fairy form, depending on the direction you're pressing, it almost works kind of like a dodge, like you have in, uh, uh, in some other games. And then from there, obviously, you've got, you've got time to line up your shot and, uh, and take them down. Um, but yeah, a big part of making it quite fast is I personally like, after I've played a game, trying to beat it as fast as I can. I wouldn't say speedrunning because I'm uh, nowhere near like on the level that most speedrunners are, or any speedrunners probably. But I do like to try and finish games as quick as I can after I've uh, beat them and like properly enjoyed them the first time. Um, so I thought it was a good opportunity to sort of build that into the game as well. Okay. It's interesting hearing people's feedback. A lot of the times um, when people are getting used to the mechanic, they'll often remark about how slow she moves uh, when she's got the sword. But that was intentional uh, to try and get you to use the alternative forms more. You got used to them quicker. Um, I experimented with it a lot with uh, playtesters early and that seemed to be like the the best way of getting people into the mechanic quickly yeah uh, I mean, if she trotted sort of, around really quickly you wouldn't actually use the um, the the other forms much at all as well as yeah. much as you have to because otherwise you're right it's just oh god she's taking forever that's right because she's eight years old and she's carrying a great 12 foot long sword or whatever <laughs> however big it is it's not quite, you know, a cloud yeah, it's not sword. Quite, not quite as big as I wanted to wanted to draw it, but every time I tried to make it bigger, it just looked silly. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it works on Final Fantasy VII, so. but not quite. <laughs> so, <laughs> next question then is uh, muscle memory. Mm-hmm. It, it, it takes a strong role in platform games like Mabel in the Wood. Yeah, uh, but this is challenged. Why maybe in the wood and that uh, and and the wood sorry and uh, the and this by forcing the player to reconfigure what Mabel can do based on the form she's taken. Yeah. How do you? How did you prevent this becoming a barrier to play? Do you think? So there are some things I did intentionally, right? And some things that just sort of uh, come out naturally. Okay. Um, so, one of the things I did intentionally is in the game there are um, sort of seven different shapes that you'll get during the game uh, in total. Uh, there is an eighth one, but that's sort of a post-credits kind of thing. Um, so it doesn't really have any real gameplay implications. But the the seven forms, not all of them are the kind of things that you will use continuously. So some of them you might only use in quite specific situations, um, which means that um, there are maybe, I'd say maybe four of them that people, from like observe people, what people tend to do is, because you get the spider form quite early, people will usually settle on a favourite between the spider and the fairy, um, like almost like immediately. Um, and they are kind of opposite versions of the same idea. Like the fairy is you leave the sword behind and then pull it back to you. The spider is you fire the sword ahead and yeah, fire the sword ahead of you and then pull yourself towards the sword. Um, but then the other ones, uh, like when you unlock the ghost form, I've seen people who I know are speedrunners find that are really happy with that one. They use that quite a lot. Um, but yeah, so the natural thing is that I've found people tend to settle into sort of a favourite um, form and they use that as much as they possibly can. Okay. And all sorts of the forms uh, when they're either experimenting, if they're having trouble with something, or if it's like clearly obvious that that's sort of a, that's like a, the key to a challenge that they've got to overcome. Yeah, it's. Um, I just find it quite interesting that 
you know, when playing platformers, you get to the understand the lexicon of the game, if you yeah. will. And uh, once you've got that, you've got the, and then you know what you can do and what you can't do. More importantly, that's yeah. where the game opens up. Whereas uh, Mabel in the Wood does that, but it keeps on <laughs> giving you new tools. Like, okay, here's another tool. Damn it! Let's figure it out. There's another one. It's uh, I found actually I've done that um, quite a lot with the level design as well. Uh, yeah. So Which was throwing like, I mean, the, a big part of the problem was I didn't want it to be a huge game. As in, um, it felt for me, I felt like it was a, like a six-hour game, roughly. You know, like so not a huge one, but like a yeah, decent size for that kind of platformer, Metroidvania kind of thing. Um, so a lot of the ideas are like quite compressed. Um, so every every few rooms you'll come up with like a new idea, and then that's sort of developed, and then they'll obviously come back and e- echo back in the design later. But um, yeah, the the sort of quick shifting between things. Um, I think one of the ways that um, perhaps it you help sort of keep that muscle memory is that they all have things in common, despite being like seemingly completely different. They all sort of follow very similar rules. Um, the main one that I made myself adhere to is that um, movement and attack have to be the same thing. So um, none of the forms have something where you do one thing to attack and another thing to move. There's all like one thing to defend and one thing to, to move. They're always like the same thing. So when you like charge forward to smash through a wall as a stone man, that will also sort of take enemies out. Um, as I said originally, when you when you're dropping the sword to fly away as a fairy, pulling that sword back not only propels you, it also kills enemies. Um, okay. So I guess that maybe helps a bit. Yes, yes, it just does. That that um, it, it lead me on to to the, the the third question I have is that can you describe the process of level design? You've already hinted at it, but. At the latter part of Maple in the Wood, uh, the player will have more tools to play with. So how have you found developing puzzles or levels that are still challenging, knowing that the player is, has all this power of, to break what you've carefully created? What, what have you done, if anything, to address the challenge levels there, to keep players engaged and engrossed, if you will? That was probably the hardest thing, uh, level design, um, for that reason. So if, so um, level design is like a really iterative process anyway. Um, And having a game where all the levels are connected. um, So in some of the areas, you're not even sure sort of what order the player is going to be uh, moving through the game. Um, it's not as uh, sort of sprawling and um, like so for example Hollow Knight Hollow Knight you might enter a room from many many different routes you know I mean you may have come to it from many different routes Um, but in Mabel there's probably less quite a lot less uh, or fewer variables to uh, as to, to how, how many different routes you'll be coming into each room. Um, but with the balancing, so generally what I'll do is um, I'll build, when I'm designing a room, I'll build it as if it's being designed for um, one of the specific shapes. Um, and then I will do, um, I'll test it then with the fairy form um, because if you've gone the pacifist route and you reach this room then you'll only have the fairy form available to you so it's got to be um, passable with the fairy form and then if it's too difficult with that fairy form or it feels like it's going to be out of um, like out of the rhythm of that uh, part of the game then I'll either um make it more suited to the fairy form or I'll um, do a little bit of trickery which just checks if you've got 
uh, the form that you need to complete the room. And if not, it will add in some extra little bits of geometry or remove certain bits of geometry. Um, right. Just to sort of help you use a, use a different form. Um, okay. okay. One of the main problems I've had, though, is that it's been, a lot of it's been just me sort of testing that and then um, trying it with, like, a couple of friends who've played it quite a lot. But we all, it seems like we all have quite similar skills. So I'm watching people play things, um, and they'll just they'll either really struggle with the form that it's actually made for, and just go to the fairy and just go through it with the fairy, because um, that's what they're most comfortable with. Or they'll just get through with the spider form because that's what they're most comfortable with. Uh, and even sometimes on the commentary, I'll hear them say, "Oh, this has clearly just been designed for this form," when in fact it was probably designed for like the mole or whatever, um, because. It was so easy for me to do it with the mole because of how I use the mole form. Right, uh, right. I'm just smashing the whole like last part of the game with the uh, with the ghost form when I've put sort of things in there to try and prevent you from just or not prevent you, but add more risk to sort of shooting ahead super fast. Um, so yeah, <laughs> try my best, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It turns out that some players are just too good. So, yeah, you've basically raid rod for your own back, but hey, video yeah. game development. Yay! <laughs> um, so, last question then, and I can't <laughs> let you go without asking this one. There's a very sardonic sense of humour running through <laughs> Mabel and the Wood. Is this a reflection of the world Mabel exists in, or is it just an amplification of how odd everything is? <laughs> Um, I think a lot of the tone of it came out of so I I wanted it to be about sort of serious themes but the problem is it's me that's writing it and I I like to be silly Um, and I found that like um Even though, yeah, it's dealing, so it's dealing with some quite heavy stuff, but it's obviously in a fantasy world. Um, and it doesn't, at any point, like, uh, explicitly tell you anything. Um, it's very sort of... Um, I was very careful to make it so that every so everyone you spoke to and everyone who says anything is just telling you everything from their point of view. Um and everyone's everyone's always wrong about something, so I wanted to make sure it was quite clear that um, no matter who you listen to, no one's going to be like a hundred percent right uh, in the game. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think like the uh, I'm trying to think of a good example without spoiling it. Yeah, I know. I think. Like, yeah. Well, the cultists, for example, like the main guy, like Alderoy, um, talking about the the prophecy and stuff. Um, and I don't know have you have you played past the uh, parishioner, the corrupt, um, the quantum pilgrim guy? Have you had yes. a, a little boat ride? That's uh, right. Yes. Don't want to again go into too much yeah. detail. For... So that gives you like um, like a different perspective. Yeah, um, and it doesn't really. Again, it doesn't actually sort of explicitly tell you anything other than who that person is. Like it doesn't. I guess it tells you more about the world and like. Um, it. I mean, it, it doesn't explicitly tell you whether or not you are saving the world, whether you even can save the world, whether or not anything makes a difference. Whether or not saving the world means it doesn't blow up, or I don't know. The whole like, um, yeah, the whole story was like a super weird one that sort of developed over the four years. It changed quite a lot, um, but the main thing I wanted to do was make sure that it was all just told through people just giving their own perspective on it, like, okay. on, and everyone's giving you their problems. Um, even when they're asking you to help them out or tell you, tell you something to try and help you, they can't help but be themselves and have their like own own crap going on. 
Right. And I feel like that's been one of the things where it's been sort of um, hit and miss in a way. Like I've heard people, like people have said to me how much they love it and they like the tone of it and um, they like the way it sort of just lets you think about what the story is. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen reviews where it's uh, not been taken well, where it's been um, like people have, like criticise the tone of it, saying that it's um, what was the word maudlin. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that's necessarily right because they're all sort of like when they're being negative, being negative in kind of a chirpy way. And when they're being positive, yeah, I mean, when they're being positive, they're being, uh, it's it's like done in a way where you might be suspicious of that positivity in a way. Okay. But then the world's ending, so, you know. Yeah. No one's going to be uh, super happy about that, unless they're no. for one reason or another. I, I do like the summoning, actually, the whole exchange. <laughs> it's a little girl! Shut up! <laughs> it's just... <laughs> it's just... It just made me laugh. It really did. It's just the whole exchange between little cultists. <laughs> like, what is this? You've got to keep that, you know, British turn in there, aren't you? They, yeah, you, you got to. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it was very Pythonesque. It was like, what's <laughs> this rubbish? Shut up! <laughs> it's just a brilliant exchange. It really was the best way to like deal with it. Like, shut up! Like, really? <laughs> right. Well, no, thanks for that. No, it's um. I think you did a really good job of delivering the story by adding pathos and just this dry sense of humour throughout. It's lovely. Yeah, I think you've got to have that when you've got when you're talking about something that's like so bleak. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to, you know. Yeah, make it fun, bleak but fun. So, Mabel in the Wood by Triple Vision Games is out now on Windows, PC, Mac, uh, Mac OS, and Linux. Uh, I believe it's heading to the Nintendo Switch, is that right? Yes, uh, 10th of October. Right, so yeah, yeah a little it's... ways off. And uh, uh, also out on the Xbox One, is that right? Yes, I think the Xbox One is the 19th of September. Okay, there you go. Um, and yeah, uh, and Switch is yeah, yeah, 10th of October. Wow. Which is optimization, even for a like game is necessary indeed indeed <laughs> uh but uh no andrew it's been fantastic having you on the show thanks for being a, a great guest thanks for having me chris yes and, uh, wish you the very best of luck in your future endeavors and you're more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever future game you have in your head right now in three or four years from now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. please no not three or four years <laughs> <laughs> just more Maybe a little, maybe a little less then. Yeah. No, but thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Chris. <laughs>